Hey, it's Alex Pearson from On Point. Today on the podcast, we are going to delve into the backlog of our court system and what the pandemic has uh, done to the slow wheels of justice. And it turns out we're going to see a whole bunch of cases punted out of the system. But it comes down to what cases and does that mean people are getting away with crimes? We'll talk about the new Green Deal, the future of Canada that Trudeau is going to be pushing on us in this throne speech and the true cost it will be to Canadians. As well, what does Aaron O'Toole need to do that Andrew Scheer could not? Well, basically everything. We'll talk about the new audience they need, the base that they need to grow, and uh, the time that Mr. O'Toole does not have. So we'll do that and more. Let's get going. To the millions of Canadians that are still up, that I'm meeting tonight for the first time, good morning. I'm Aaron O'Toole. You're going to be seeing and hearing a lot from me in the coming weeks and months. But I want you to know from the start that I'm here to fight for you and your family. There you go. Aaron O'Toole wins the battle, and now he's got to wash off the stench of the last election and win the war. Question is, how is he going to convince a very restless electorate that he is their guy? Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, August 24th, yawning my way through the whole day. Boy, was that a long night. A long night. But I love the uh, critics critiquing, mocking. Oh, my God. It's like, has no one ever covered it? and a, a leadership vote? I mean, leadership votes are always delayed. In fact, it would be news if these things ever went on time. I mean, I'll, I, I think back to Dalton McGinty's leadership bid at Maple Leaf Gardens. Oh, it was supposed to be quack, quick and fast, and I get her done. And there we were, 4.30, stumbling out as the bars got out. You go back, uh, Doug Ford, Doug Ford's leadership not on time. It was uh, it was so late they didn't even bother with the balloon drop. No one was even there. So sure, it's annoying, but the delays are not exclusive to any political party. But certainly the uh, the opposition, not the opposition, the liberals and uh, NDP will have some fun with it. Gives them some fodder to throw around. You know, proof that the conservatives can't run a contest, never mind their country. And now, of course, it's background noise. They should actually just be worried about the fact that there's a viable option now chosen. And it wasn't the guy we were told was the shoe-in. It wasn't a coronation. It wasn't the guy with the biggest profile and the biggest money behind him. Apparently, you know, Peter McKay, it was he himself that couldn't score on the empty net. It did not help when he called uh, social conservatives a stinking albatross. And it did, in fact, come back to haunt him. So I was not surprised Um, He didn't run a great campaign. He made a lot of rookie mistakes that a guy at his level should not have made. And I knew O'Toole would do well in the West, but it it was the numbers in Quebec that was really the shocker. And he was way ahead of McKay in an area and region McKay should have owned. So right then and there, it was uh, was kind of over. But there were so many interesting stories that unfolded last night. Certainly uh, McKay's celebrity was not enough to deliver a win. It should not be. You want a candidate who's going to bring some good policy ideas to the table. And leaderships, you know, it's all about, it's not, it's not like campaigning in an election. It it was for Aaron O'Toole, a slow and steady campaign. 
And leadership campaigns are far more focused because you're appealing to the base. They're not appealing to everyday Canadians who are out there doing their stuff. It's to people who are focused in, they buy memberships, they're very motivated. So O'Toole focused on things like Canadian pride, Western pride, gun rights, tough on crime. And he also didn't call social conservatives a stinking albatross, which helps. And despite the hysteria for some, O'Toole did not act like a tyrant. He knew his target. He went after it and he won the leadership. But he won't campaign like that, not for a general election when you're trying to appeal to the masses. And I guarantee you, many, many, many people out there today still don't know who the hell Aaron O'Toole is. They don't even know there was a leadership vote. So it doesn't matter. Unless it's your enemy. They'll they'll certainly keep it in the headlines if they can. The story of the night, of course, for me was Dr. Leslie Lewis. Because she was the outsider. She was the underdog. And she blew everyone away. I mean, O'Toole won, yes. But she's also a big part of that story. But she raised two million bucks on her own. She had barely any media support. I had her on uh, the show once. I tried to get her on a couple of times, but it was not easy to get her. And that was likely because her team was a lot smaller, but they were very focused on the ground game, which they crushed. I mean, if you look at the second ballot, she had more votes than McKay and O'Toole. She had the popular vote, 60,000 votes. And that was not expected. Problem for her, it was not in the places that she needed them to give her the big points, uh, you know, uh, spread. But nonetheless, you look at her numbers in Alberta, she had more than O'Toole. And, of course, that's where we're told all the rednecks and the racists live, right? Well, apparently they were very eager to vote for a person of color. So let's just stop with the race car. Like, it's tired. Period. If there was a racist element to this party, she would not have done nearly as well as she did last night. She did terrific. I mean, Doug Ford was put into power by immigrant communities. Jason Kenney has a huge base of new Canadians. Uh, So Lewis will play, I think, a very big role role in the party moving forward. O'Toole needs her. I think the party needs her. I think she has very uh, interesting ideas. She's a very, very smart woman. You just got to listen to her. You can't just cast aspersions because a social conservative. So what? Listen to her. She might have something to say that's of interest. You might not agree. But the the conversation now is, well, it's a social conservative and, and they're the enemy. It's like, no, they're not. Just listen to their ideas. When you go after a lot of social conservatives, you're basically going after a lot of new Canadians who have family values that might not identify with ours or yours or mine or whatever, but that doesn't mean they can't have them. I mean, last I checked, we're still allowed to have those views. They're not my views, but I'm not going to disrespect someone for them. So now O'Toole's got to figure out, you know, what is his party? Who is it? How are they going to get people to come out? He has name recognition in the GTA. But he also needs to do what Sheer couldn't, which is a lot. I mean, he needs to cut through the noise and define himself before the liberals or the media do it for him. You know, they cannot run on hating Trudeau. Aaron O'Toole needs ideas that are going to appeal to a lot of people looking for hope right now and a lot of young voters. And he kind of laid it out. His speech was terrific last night, but here, here's a sample of it. Today, you have given me a clear mission to unite our party to champion our conservative principles, to show Canadians what we know so well, that Justin Trudeau and his team are failing our great country. We must continue to point out liberal failings and corruption, but we must also show Canadians 
our vision for a stronger, prosperous, and more united Canada. Indeed, I thought he struck the right tone. I thought it was a good speech. You know, Andrew Scheer decided to go out angry and bitter, and I get it, but it didn't sound good. So I thought he right. Uh, I thought he got the right tone on that speech. The big challenge for Andrew Tool is going to be appealing to the urban centers. I mean, he needs to grow the base, and the polls show Ipsos polling that there are a lot of people who are willing to vote conservative. They're willing to look at Aaron O'Toole. But if the party lets the liberals define him as the bad guy, and if he can't defend himself from being that bad guy, then you're going to get the same results as last time. I don't think Aaron O'Toole's like that because he's got, you know, he, he can stand up for himself. He can articulate thoughts. But nonetheless, he has to do what he did last night and make sure that, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. There's a place in the party. Because I believe that whether you are black, white, brown, or from any race or creed, whether you are LGBT or straight, whether you are an indigenous Canadian, or have joined the Canadian family three weeks ago or three generations ago, whether you are doing well or barely getting by, whether you worship on Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays, or not at all, you are an important part of Canada. You know, anybody who knows uh, Aaron O'Toole, because he's been in politics for a long time. His dad was in politics for a long time. He's a nice guy, very likable guy, very accomplished. So I suspect, you know, the party's going to rally behind quickly, uh, certainly given we could see an election in the fall, possibly, certainly by the spring. And I suspect already there are campaign teams being built. You know, they've got a lot of organization. They've got to start getting candidates. They've got to do a lot of work. And they just came off of eight months of this. It's a lot of work. It's exhausting. But the premier today was asked, you know, will he get support from Premier Ford? I'm going to take the high road here. I'm, I'm going to just work hard with Ontario. Uh, I wish them all the best. Uh, federal Conservatives, I wish all the federal parties all the best. My main goal, uh, my, my main focus is to uh, stay here in Ontario, focus on Ontario. There you go. He says he's busy. Um, and remember, he was he was treated like the stinking albatross last time by the sheer team as well as the liberals. And um, and now his his margins, his numbers are up. He's a totally different kind of politician, but he's sitting this one out. So nonetheless, um, that might hurt. That might help. I don't know. But I have a feeling everyone will be busy. Don't know what the covid situation will look like, but um, they've got to get out and they've got to get a lot of good ideas. Well, it's not like we needed a pandemic to reveal the slow wheels of justice, but uh, what it ended up doing was kind of making them slower. And so in response, our system had to kind of bring itself out of the Stone Ages, bring technology in to help expedite things. So things like bail hearings were done by Zoom. And any trial they could get on Zoom, they did that as well. And then I'm reading over the weekend in the Star that the federal and provincial governments are starting to move to have prosecutors only focus on the big and the more serious drug cases and throw out some of the drinking and driving offenses, things like reckless uh, driving that might not be as uh, high profile. And what this would do is, I guess, get cases out of the way. And it also allows offenders not to have a criminal record. But what if they deserve that? Lauren Honigman joining us now, our global news radio legal expert. And Lauren, I mean, on the surface, it sounds like it makes sense. You know, you get caught with the joint. Okay, they deal with it, get it out of the courts. But 
you know, impaired driving offenses are 9.1%. They top kind of the highest proportion of yeah. cases followed by fraud. And I think a lot of people, given that we're so easy on drunk drivers, you might disagree, that going down this road is going to send a, a dangerous, you know, message. Well, that you're always worried about that. But let's start from the federal side. So the federal government is responsible for prosecuting the, the drug offenses. And there's been so many drug possessions, simple possessions that have clogged the courts themselves. And it, and it hasn't made sense. And so what's happened in the pandemic, they've taken a look at it uh, and they say, well, wait a minute, you know, what can we do there? And so there's a lot there that, that does make sense. Uh, do we have to go after simple possessions right now? Is there a better way? Maybe we can put people through diversion projects, et cetera. Got to still worry about public safety, but we got to look at alternative measures. That makes a lot of sense. The, the impaired driving makes sense as well, but I do understand that there is going to be a much bigger concern with it. So let's, let's set it out, Alex, as to what actually may be changed. Um, First of all, if anybody, if there's any offense where somebody has, um, uh, for example, a repeat offender, a second offense, they won't be allowed to be taken anywhere else in the system. Somebody uh, allegedly blows over 120 uh, or, or higher, they won't be allowed to be taken anywhere else. If they, if they during, um, uh, if there was an accident and they are charged with impaired causing bodily harm or impaired causing death, you know, the more serious ones, they won't be taken out of the stream. So what we're talking about is, is, is indeed, it's, 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 a, it's still serious, but it's more of a limited sample that's going to be involved here. So, and where will they go? They're not going to be totally let off the hook. I think people have to understand that. The plan would be, if it, if it goes through, is that they will be prosecuted through the Highway Traffic Act, which still has uh, the potential for jail, which still has the potential uh, for license to be um, removed, still has high fines. It's, it's not the same, of course. What's the key difference? The criminal record. That would, would happen afterwards. So I, I totally get it that we live in a society where people are still really upset about this, but but maybe I get a tiny bit of, of um, satisfaction, if you will, or, or relaxation to know that mothers against drink drive, uh, drunk driving. Um, I'm, I read that that they're all for this because they understand that so many of these cases are clogging the courts, get caught in the system. They may not be heard for two, three years down the road. They may get thrown out on Jordan applications for unreasonable delay. So at least something is happening. Okay, the problem is when it comes to these kinds of cases with impaired is that you get a pattern and they kind of go in and out of court, in and out of court, and then it becomes more serious and then they get away with one thing. And, and eventually we're dealing with sometimes a serious offense by someone who's got multiple, multiple charges against them from the past. And, and the concern is, again, that we're going to start seeing people say, you know, it's probably not a bad deal. I can get out of this. I'll get out of the charge. It won't be serious. And before you know it, then they've killed people. Right. And and that's why my understanding is, is that the, the policy they're looking at now closely is that it wouldn't be those people, Alex. It wouldn't be the, the repeat offender. It wouldn't be the person who two years ago was convicted of an impaired and maybe got another one. And now they're involved in another in another case, it's it's someone who I guess if you, if you look at it, you, you'd be capturing a lot of first offenders, mm -hmm. 
people who haven't, there's no accident. So they haven't caused any, any bodily harm, allegedly, or any death. Um, they were, let's say, you, your typical, the person thinking they could go from A to B over the Christmas holidays, didn't think they were impaired, uh, get pulled over by a ride program, and lo and behold, they blow just a little over, quote unquote, a little over, maybe it's 100 milligrams. Uh, and, um, and that the person, instead of getting caught now in that criminal justice system, because that person's going to spend the money to try and do anything and everything they can not to have a criminal record. So they're going to hire lawyers um, and they're saying, okay, now we can di divert those people. So if it's not a repeat offender and it's somebody who hasn't, you know, maybe, I don't know how they may have come up with the 120 milligrams, but, but if they, they don't make, reach that magic number, it might be something that's worth looking at. And the other thing that I understand the province is looking at is what happened, what's happening out in, in British Columbia with these ad administrative suspensions immediately, roadside prohibition program, they call it out there. Uh, you get pulled over and, and it's sort of like punishment right away. It's like, oh, you blew it. Here you go. You've, you've lost your license for X amount of time and away we go. So that may be something to look at as well. Do you know, just before I let you go, Lauren, how bad the backlogs are? Are we looking at any major, major cases that are, that we're, are we going to start seeing a trend of big cases that are starting to get, you know, close to that, that deadline and tossed out? Have well, you know, provision, I, have they made, uh, you know, accommodations for that? I, I can tell you, Alex, the judges who are running this province, so the, the Chief Justice of Ontario, uh, Justice Morowitz, and all the senior justices, uh, have been putting their head together um, and they are doing it's they've got this system now in place you said it off the top that one of the things that has come out of this pandemic is modernizing the justice system and and so I think that they are looking at this Alex they're looking at it carefully they know that there's a lot of cases out there that are hanging on and they don't want this there's so many cases that have been put on hold because of the pandemic but all I can tell you is this I can't answer your question and say everything is going to be okay or it's not going to be okay but I can tell you one thing because I've been following it closely these people are working and have been working overtime to it, to do anything and everything to get the system up and running again. I mean, you know, uh, talk uh, Zoom hearings, just Zoom hearings alone, bail hearings. I was trying to get a hold of one of my colleagues today. He's been on Zoom bail hearings all day, uh, just trying to do those things to try and get keep things going. So let's just hope. Let's hope that um, that with all the other ramifications from this awful pandemic, that the justice system doesn't take a huge hit. Uh, because, of course, everybody will be affected by that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm almost fearful when we do the kind of post, uh, yeah. you know, look on this of who got out, who got bailed that shouldn't have because of you right. know, who cut corners. Right. But we'll see. All right, Lauren, I got to let you go on that note, but I thank you for joining us. My pleasure. That is Lauren Honickman joining us here today. By the way, if you missed the show, you can get the download uh, of our podcast at 640 Toronto or go into your podcast app and look for on point when we come back if it didn't work before why would it work now we'll talk about that as justin trudeau prepares to push his green agenda which ontario has a well a history there we'll talk about that next stay with us here alex pearson on point this is global news radio 
Well, apparently Canada really sucked before this pandemic. And so the prime minister's made it very clear that uh, he's going to table a throne speech to completely overhaul Canada. And his post-COVID world is going to be nicer, more fair, and of course, all things green. And I think for most of us, recovery should be the ultimate goal. And recovery for most would be, you know, bringing security and stability to millions, things like jobs. But it's very clear the Trudeau government wants to use this pandemic to go all in on some ideological economic policies and proposals that, I mean, they didn't work before this pandemic. So why would we expect them to work now? I want to bring in Ross McKittrick to this conversation, professor of economics at the University of Guelph, a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. And you wrote about this in particular um, as to, you know, it didn't really work before. Why are we doing this again? Yeah, um, I've heard so much of this discussion about the the COVID pandemic is an opportunity to restructure the economy and pursue a whole bunch of green strategies that we know failed before the pandemic. And so the the obvious question that, that I wanted to ask is, why do we think all these rules of economics and, and uh, principles for evaluating policies, why do we think they changed? And the short answer is they didn't. If it was a bad idea before the pandemic, it's a bad idea today. In fact, it's a worse idea because we have less money to waste now than we did. We've blown through a huge amount of our national wealth just surviving the pandemic. And our focus now has to be on sustainable job creation and profitable investments. The argument will be that we can create jobs um, in the green, um, you know, industry and, you know, like brought in Mark Carney, who will be one of the major advisors on this. People like him. They trust him. They see him as uh, the bank of, you know, the governor to the the Bank of Canada and well as as the UK. But he's also quite ideological in his uh, later years. Um, You know, what, what would we see investment in? Like when they say green, what are we talking Well, if they uh, use it to mean everything that they've used it for in the past, then we will see a replay of a lot of the policies like in Ontario, the Green Energy Act, um, investing heavily in renewables with the promise that this would create jobs and it won't change electricity prices. Both those promises were false. It, It cost us far more jobs than it created and electricity prices soared. Uh, In the U.S., when Obama was first elected, he ran on this promise of a new green economy. Don't worry about all the old manufacturing jobs that have gone. We'll have a green economy that will bring millions of new jobs. It didn't work. It was a predictable failure. Uh, Europe has gone through the same thing, all these false promises. But the policies, even if they create some jobs in things like building wind turbines, they destroy more old traditional jobs than they create in the new sector. And I really hope that we don't have to go through another round of very expensive um, policy blunders just to learn the same lesson that we've learned over and over at this point. Right. I mean, you know, the reason um, many say that we didn't suffer more in 2008 is because we fell back to what we have, and that's energy from our resource sector. We were able to tap into our own resources, not really basically uh, save the skin of, of Canadians. But it is very clear because we have not seen it either through action of aid packages. And uh, certainly Alberta has been waiting an awful long time, time even before this pandemic hit. There's been no investment outside of kind of token, um, you know, handouts that that they're serious about looking to the energy sector to, to help with the recovery. Yeah, um, to help with the recovery, um, 
the, the, the rules are really very simple and they've been around for a long time, which is that you look for profitable opportunities. And, and uh, uh, in that sense, it's not really something the government has to do. The, the private sector is still far better at spotting potential winners and investing in them. If they happen to be the green sectors, that's fine. The private sector will, will find them and will invest in them. Although for the past four months, um, after uh, the price of oil collapsed to near zero, it's recovered quite a bit. And so investments in the energy sector have done very well over the past few months. But looking to the future, um, if there's a big category of investments that we know are money losers, that we know can never survive without heavy subsidies, and that includes a lot of green renewable energy type uh, investments, electric vehicles would be another one. If we plow a whole bunch of public money into those sectors, we can predict with 100% certainty the money will be wasted. They won't create jobs. They will destroy more jobs than they create. And instead of this being an accelerant for the economic recovery, it's going to be a drag on the economic recovery. And it's unfortunate that he's picking someone like Mark Carney, who, as you say, has become very ideological uh, at this point in his career. I don't think he's going to apply the types of principles of cost-benefit analysis that he would have once applied as a banker. I think now he's just going to use this as an opportunity to push an agenda. When did it become so widely accepted, this narrative that there is no demand for oil anymore? I mean, there is. It's just not in Canada. But everywhere else in the world, I read that there's plenty of demand. Russia's making lots of money on it. America's making lots of money on it. China's buying it. I mean, there is a market for oil. It's just Canada that seems to be sitting on the sidelines. Well, um, there's a there's still a very healthy market for oil in Canada. It's just gotten harder and harder to move it from the supply points to the demand points. Um, you see the uh, the price of gasoline in Vancouver. That um, although it went down during the pandemic, um, people there have been struggling with gasoline prices over a dollar fifty a liter, sometimes over a dollar seventy a liter. Um, the demand is very strong there, but they have very limited access to refinery outputs. And one of the reasons for building the Trans Mountain e Extension is to bring more refined fuels to the West Coast. Uh, all the obstacles that have been put in the way of completing that project just mean um, the price goes up. The demand is still there. Uh, it's uh, so. I, the idea that uh, somehow Canadians have already made a transition off of fossil fuels is is contradicted by the data that um, like everywhere else during the shutdown, people weren't driving. So the price of fuel went way down, but now that people are back out and about and using their cars and traveling again, the demand for fuels has come back. And in the winter, we still have to heat our homes and uh, that demand for fuel will show up again. Well, you know, the, uh, the saying, never let a good uh, crisis go to waste, uh, you know, um, and clearly it's going to get very political. We'll see what happens in the throne speech. But Ms. Freeland made it very clear, whatever we do with recovery is going to be green. Do you think people will associate the priciness um, to this, that, that the, the history of failed um, you know, policies we've seen in the past? Or do you get the sense that people are too distracted uh, and, and more worried about making sure that they get their aid money and, and, and all the rest? No, I think people can make the connection. Um, uh, certainly in Ontario, um, when the government pushed hard on renewable energy and uh, then people saw the electricity prices going up. Um, yeah, enough people made the connection and uh, looked at what was causing this. 
And um, so it, it kind of depends on what they actually do. If it's just window dressing, if it's just um, verbiage, then it may not show up as uh, pocketbook cost for people. But if um, if they put in place like the clean fuel standard, if that causes mm-hmm. the price of gas to jump in Canada, um, then yeah, people are going to notice it. And um, that's where uh, the idealism and ideology of the federal government, I think, is going to run into uh, a very hostile reception in the public. Well, we are going into a hostile recession, so uh, we'll see if Canadians are actually paying attention. Uh, Ross, I'll have you on again because it's a very big topic, very important topic, and um, I guess our our future really kind of depends on it. So I, I appreciate you joining us. Thanks, Alex. My pleasure. That is uh, Ross McKittrick, who has actually written about this for the Fraser Institute. And we'll continue talking about it because, again, a lot of people aren't paying attention. It's when they start getting the bills in and realize, I can't afford any of this. What happened? And then you realize, oh, okay, it's for this ideology that we're paying such huge costs for. When we come back, we'll talk to the doctor because the other casualty in this pandemic is the fact that we rushed into some homeless shelters without a lot of consultation. And guess what's happening now? Yes, crime. A lot of drug needles being found around schools and a lot of neighborhoods very, very angry. So we'll dive in with that with the doctor just after this break here on Point. I'm Alex Pearson and this is Global News Radio. We need a leader who puts Canadians first and will stand up for Canada and our interests in a challenging world where we've lost the respect of our friends and allies. The world still needs more Canada. It just needs less Justin Trudeau. That is Aaron O'Toole, new leader of the Conservative Party, and campaigns matter. You'll hear that a lot, and uh, he did prove that last night when he won the top job on the third ballot, beating out the guy everyone said was a shoe-in. But um, Peter McKay wasn't. He ran a lousy campaign. And the truth is, O'Toole outplayed McKay at every turn over those last eight months. But of course, that was then, this is now, and now that O'Toole is in, it's all about the campaign of, uh, you know, uniting the party and coming up with a plan of beating Justin Trudeau. And they simply can't beat Justin Trudeau by hating Trudeau. So Mr. O'Toole has got to come up with ideas that don't just resonate with the base, but with those looking for an alternate. We just saw a polling recently by Ipsos. There are a lot of Canadians, 50% of Canadians are willing to look at the Conservative Party and give them the vote. Question is... Can you come up with a plan to do that? David Tarant is Vice President of National Strategic Communications with Enterprise Canada. He has done a lot of stuff in politics as far as strategy is concerned. And you uh, put out a terrific thread, uh, David, this weekend. And you were part of um, a terrific article by John Ibbotson of the Globe and Mail, um, kind of laying out this path to success for Aaron O'Toole or whoever leads the Conservative Party. Because it it can't just be about the name there, you know, it's tempting to chew on the scandal. There's lots of meat on that that bone, but I think it would be a mistake. And correct me where I'm wrong, but I think it would be a mistake for Aaron O'Toole to to champ at that bone instead of letting the pit bulls like Pierre Polyev and Michael Barrett chew on that. What does he do now? Well, well, Alex, you know, it's a great question, and and you know. Well, the first thing I got to say about Trudeau is this: the base of the Conservative Party has always been strong. It's the strongest base of any party uh, in the country. It's about uh, a little under thirty percent of, 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 of Canadians are voting Conservative, and there's no real second choice with with an asterisk for the Wexit Party that we could talk about later on. Um, these people hate Trudeau, and you already got them. Like yeah. you already have them, 
And one of the, one of the, one of the things that we saw in 2019 was was how many, I say, conservative partisans, and listen, I've worked on conservative campaigns, i worked on the 2019 campaign, are mystified that uh, people who aren't aren't kind of kind of kind of hardcore conservatives don't hate Trudeau the way they do. Um, uh, it, it just it's not a matter of it. Trudeau Trudeau is is a capable uh, campaigner. He has an amazing ability to connect with people. He's a charismatic guy. But just because someone doesn't hate Trudeau doesn't mean they're going to not vote conservative. But you've got to give them a reason to. And one of the lessons we think we learned from the past year is that. Um, that people people who are in economic distress, who are worried about their jobs, who are worried about being able to pay the bills, the conservative party has to be able to speak to them and offer them uh, meaningful meaningful policies, meaningful ideas, meaningful hope that you actually they actually care about how hard hard off people are, uh, and and not fall into the trap of being the party about of of these cuts and balanced budgets above all else. Right. And, and you know, the base will go out and vote come hell or high water. The problem with the base is it is what it is. It hasn't grown. And so they've got to get this millennial and Generation Z vote in. And they've got to appeal to young people um, and find what will interest them. And it might pain conservatives to talk about things like environmentalism, climate change, whatever. There's a way you can do it and still be a conservative. So what policy would make sense for um, O'Toole to be presenting to get some of the younger uh, voters in? Uh, well, for me, one, there's a couple. There's two things I think that are really, really important. Um, the first is, and the answers aren't easy. They're not supposed to be easy. The first is to come up with a plan for childcare that mm-hmm. is distinct and different from a plan that's paid for by taxpayers, designed by bureaucrats, and run by public sector unions, which is what the liberal plan will be. Uh, but the liberals at least recognize that a lot of families, and particularly a lot of women, are, have a real stress around childcare. Mm-hmm. They're saying, mm-hmm. we have a solution. Now, they have a solution that's, over the long run, a pretty terrible solution. But at least a solution is better than shrugging your shoulders and saying, you're on your own. And I think, and, and I think too many conservatives are wedded to the orthodoxy that, you know, oh, we'll just, you know, give people another tax cut. Or we'll just, you know, or give, people will find more jobs and make it easier. Well, people are finding it really stressful, really hard to balance the demands of work and the demands of raising a family. What kind of support are you going to put in place to help these families, particularly these women, uh, raise a family and, 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 and pursue a career? Uh, the conservatives need an answer on that that actually is in line with, with, with conservative values, whether it is providing direct supports for people to actually choose their child care options or, or some sort of pro-child care alternative to a, to a nationalized program. The second thing I think is for people, you know, Alex, you know, uh, uh, those of us who are lucky to be in jobs that have pensions and benefit programs and, and stable careers, like that's quickly uh, becoming a very small minority of the Canadian population. The future of work mm-hmm. is precarious. Uh, people talk about work at the gig economy, people kind of having to hold down three or four jobs, none of which have a pension or a benefit plan, moving from job to job, multiple transitions. The, the millennials are the first generation to kind of go through this in a great deal. Now we have Generation Z behind them, but that, that is, this has become more and more normal. What are you going to do for them? And once again, what you see is the, is, is the ideas are coming from the left to right now. They're bad ideas. The Liberal EI reform plans they announced a couple yeah, of weeks ago, it's a bad idea over the long run because it looks like it's a, it's a backdoor to universal basic income. But at least they're saying to that person who's holding down three gig economy jobs, oh, we're going to be there for you. 
Now, yeah. if the conservatives come back with no idea or it's saying, no, 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 we can't be giving people these supports because there's a disincentive for work, what you do is you look cruel. And that is the fight Trudeau is spoiling for. So, so it's, 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 the conservatives had to say, you don't have to go with a full nationalized, bureaucrat-designed, public union-run program. But you have to say, people actually are insecure, they're anxious, and we're going to recognize that and give them supports so they can pursue their careers and raise their families. Right. Which would be smart. And then if their environmental plant work with indigenous people, with because we know there are a lot of indigenous groups that actually do want to work and get energy and our natural resources to market, they could go after that part of the vote. There are areas that they can definitely grow their party. The one big challenge, as you know, David, uh, it is the albatross that uh, Peter McKay talked about is the social conservative side of the party. Now, I'm not one of these people that bashes them. I mean, they're free to think what they think, but it is a problem for whoever leads his party because every question now for Aaron O'Toole is, are you going to take my ovaries? I mean, it just is what it is. And he's got to be able to say unequivocally out of the gate, this is who we are. This is what we stand for and shut down that conversation. And at the same time, it's clear that uh, a lot of people like Dr. Leslie Lewis, and she should play a role in the party moving forward. Well, yeah, I mean, listen, I mean, uh, I, when I was, uh, had my, you know, did my thing with the Loba Mail or, or what I did on Twitter, I made a point that, you know, if you think that what's holding the Conservative Party back or what's dividing them from their own voters is social yeah. conservative issues, that's just not borne out by the evidence. It's not borne out by how the right. Liberals campaign. In, in the end of the 2019 election campaign, Justin Trudeau didn't go around the country saying uh, uh, Andrew Scheer will ban abortion, Andrew Scheer will ban abortion. He went around the, uh, the, the country saying Andrew Scheer will cut viable services like Doug Ford. Cut, 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 cut. And it, it amazes me that people say, oh, the way to win is to be fiscally conservative, fiscally conservative and socially progressive. There's not a single – show me a poll. Show me the group in this country who actually self-identifies as fiscally conservative, socially progressive, outside of a very, very elite, highly educated kind of group of, of credentialed overclass types in downtown Toronto, Ottawa, Vancouver. It just – it, it, it's, it's not where people's heads are. The people who are, people who are living lives terrified that there's a secret conspiracy to take away abortion rights long ago left the Conservative Party. They're never going to vote for the Conservative Party. The people, however, who might vote, those people who aren't in the 30 percent, but who might vote Conservative, they're not being, they're, if they were terrified by abortion, they would have left a long time ago. They recognize that the consensus on abortion is not going to change. But, but what terrifies them is the notion that a conservative party is going to come in and start cutting the programs they rely on. Right? And that's why right. when Trudeau had his press conference on Friday, he, he, like, he, he wasn't secretive. There wasn't a secret handshake or hand signal here. He stood in front of the cameras and said that he, he, he will do whatever it takes to help Canadians through the pandemic, but he recognizes that there's some parliament who believe we should do less, which was his code for the conservative party. Mm-hmm. That's the debate he wants to have. That's the election he wants to have about he wants to give people valuable support, and the Conservative Party wants to take them away. And if people think that it's abortion or, the, or opposition to carbon taxes, that's what's holding the Conservative Party back, and not a sense that, oh, no, we're so concerned with balancing the budget that we're going to take away your income supports, that is, is the real danger. Conservatives got to realize where their accessible voters actually are, and the people who, and, and what, kind of, what kind of policy stances might actually um, attract people to them and drive people away from them. 
Yeah, f fiscally responsible social programs that actually benefit the private sector, benefit people, everyday people, create jobs. Uh, yeah. it, it's a tough balancing act. It's not going to be easy. But uh, just quickly before I let you go, David, obviously the teams are being built immediately because we don't know when we're going to an election. But those platforms and those ideas have to be fleshed out pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I think uh, the day in which people, when an election platform was like you know, a 40-page book with detailed spreadsheets of costing, that was like an artifact of the 1990s. People don't really expect that anymore. Uh, like, I co-wrote uh, Premier Ford's platform in the 2018 election, and, you know, and people say, well, where's the cost and where's the cost? And we're like, this isn't a laundry list of everything we're going to do in government. What it is, it's a statement of intent. Here are the issues we're going to focus on. And that, in the current era, is really what people look for yeah. on platforms. Uh, every tool doesn't have the time, particularly if there's a fall election, yeah. to get people a 40-page manifesto. But you need to actually put down some flags of what he's going to stand for. And quite frankly, because that clearly and with conviction uh, and with yeah. compassion, that's all he needs. Keep it simple, stupid. Five solutions making all of our lives better in a very uncertain time. But uh, it'll be it'll be fun to watch and uh, fun to kind of see how it plays out. But no question, it's going to be a um, very, uh, very tough battle. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see how it does. David, thank you very much for your uh, insight on this. I appreciate it. No, thanks, Alex. Take care. That is David uh, Tarrant uh, joining us. And, and then, by the way, that John Ibbotson piece is really well worth your um, your read if you want to see kind of this path to overhauling and kind of uh, polishing up uh, the conservatives. Because, again, a lot of this is just the media saying who they are. And you just need to look at the last election of the popular vote. Um, yeah, different candidate, if it weren't Andrew Scheer, there wouldn't be a Trudeau government right now. That is your podcast for today. Of course, you can join us on Point Live, Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10. Have a great day. I'm Alex Pearson.